Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, and thank you to 10XTO for this episode, the official athletic club of Matchpoint Canada. Special episode as Roland Garros is set to begin from Paris, second Grand Slam of the season, and happy to uh, be joined this week by special guest co-host. We've had her on the podcast many times. Uh, She's a tennis commentator on BBC, Amazon Prime, Eurosport. She's done work with ATP Tennis. Uh, Abigail Johnson, thanks so much uh, for coming back on Matchpoint Canada. Hey, Ben, it's been too long. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Did I did I miss any of the publications that you've done work for? Because it's such a long <laughs> list. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nice of you to mention as many as you did, to be, to be <laughs> fair. As I freelance, I'm here and there a lot. So yeah, I don't think we'll list them all, but th- th- that was good enough for sure. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, that's that's great. Um, we're going to dive obviously into this this draw draw and the storylines that I, I think exist on both the men's and women's side for what should be a great French Open. Mike is away. However, he did a great interview with Tennis Channel's Steve Wiseman, who we've had on the podcast before, um, which we're going to listen to now. Here's Mike McIntyre's interview with guest Steve Wiseman. Pleased to welcome back to Matchpoint Canada today, one of the most recognizable faces in tennis media. You've seen him in recent years working for the Tennis Channel and ESPN, among his many other responsibilities. Steve Weissman, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, I got the full treatment from Ben last time, so now, now I got you. This is perfect. So That's right. heading and, into Roland Garros, can't wait. And as you mentioned, next time you'll have both of us, I, I promise you, okay? We'll figure that out. I missed your uh, your chat with Ben last year, of course, on the pod. So um, I, I did re-listen to the interview, didn't want to ask the same questions. And I really enjoyed hearing your sort of background story in tennis. Uh, you mentioned you played high school tennis back in the day. I'm wondering, with your busy schedule, do you find time to still get out there and, and hit the ball around from time to time? Yeah, no, for sure. Ever since I moved to L.A. seven years ago, I've, I've played a ton. Um, I actually hit with Chanda Rubin the other day after uh, we taped TC Live. She's getting ready to play the Legends event at Roland Garros. So uh, we, we went out to the courts of Santa Monica and hit for a while. And um, it depends on my schedule. I, I do work a lot, but um, I try to hit as much as possible, whether that's, you know, once a week, twice a week. You know, there's some weeks where I won't. I'll definitely bring my rackets to Paris and hopefully get a chance to, to hit on the right clay out there as well. But um, I, I love hitting. I, I'd rather hit for three hours in a row than run on the treadmill for 20 minutes. So um, I, I, it's like my happy place. I, I love being out on the court. I'm the same as you. It never feels like exercise to me because it's just whether it's the competition or just getting out there and, and playing a sport uh, rather than being in the gym for me, that's what works. I got three young kids. So I had a period of time, especially when they were little, where I rarely got to break the rackets out. And now mine are like six and eight years old. I got a little bit more flexibility. So I'm getting my game back slowly, but but surely, what's it like for you when you're out there hitting with your, um, you know, no offense attended, but uh, the more established tennis playing coworkers that you have, let's say. It, it's a thrill. Honestly, it's, uh, it's a dream come true. Um, you know, they, they still hit every ball perfectly, center the string. So it makes it easier for me. I mean, there's a lot of pressure because I don't ever want to miss. But, you know, when somebody hits a perfect ball to you, it makes it, you know, uh, a lot easier to get it back. And so whether it's hitting with Chanda, I did. Uh, Tracy Austin does this fitness where basically it's it's tennis live ball sort of thing, but it's it's doubles and you play for like two hours. 
And I got to do that with her recently. And, and that was a blast, uh, her and her brother. And, you know, she's still so good as well. And so for me, just to, to be on the court with them, it's, it's fun. Like, I, I mean, I love playing tennis in general, but, you know, w- whenever they ask, um, you I'll don't drop say everything. No. But yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the best. And, you know, I'm trying to, you know, give them the best hit as possible as well, but I'm always learning too. I mean, I want to be better. And so any pointers that I get, you know, Shanda gave me some pointers, Tracy, Lindsay. um, It's amazing. Like, I I think it's the coolest ever. You want them to ask you back out again. So you want to make sure you're putting those to use, right? Exactly. I mean, I, you know, sometimes you can get lazy on court or whatever. When I'm hitting with one of them, it's like I'm moving my feet no matter what ready position everybody i mean like i yeah yeah i'm giving 100 percent. like i know shortcuts again <laughs> is there any one of them in particular that you've had on the other side of the net where you're like oh my god look who look who i'm hitting with here i think all of them you know because i grew up you know watching all of them play so you know that it's it's always um i had martin i haven't hit with martina myself but i was a uh, volunteer assistant coaching at loyola Mar. Mount University and so she came out to play with the girls and um you know that that was just really cool for them because a lot of the players were from Eastern Europe and so they grew up idolizing her and obviously you know she's Martina she's just a legend beyond so um you know to get to see that was really cool um but you know anytime I can be on court or, or spend time with these you know legends that I'm so grateful to call friends now you know it's it's uh it's a true blessing You've been uh, seven years now or, or thereabouts, I think, with working with Tennis Channel, and you've really emerged as sort of that face that we associate with behind the desk. There have been some pretty famous uh, people before you. I think of, you know, Dick Enberg, uh, Bud Collins, those faces that uh, were there for, for years. At what point did you feel like uh, you, you really made it, that you felt solidly like, hey, I've done it, I've, I've got to this point, and, and had the confidence in your work and, and what you bring to that desk, that, that table? I mean, I, I don't know if I still feel like I've made it or anything. I, I honestly, like, I'm grateful every time I'm out there. Um, the confidence, I think, comes from, you know, doing it over and over again, having, you know, worked at ESPN for five years, every show there. Just, you know, getting the trust and respect of, of all these, you know, great, great players and great legends of the game that I'm able to interact with. And so when you know, Lindsay Davenport, Jim Courier, I even get a message from, from Chrissy Everett, who I don't even work with, but, you know, has become a friend and, you know, they, you know, give positive feedback. I think that gives me a lot of confidence. And uh, I also try to be as prepared as possible. You know, I, I, I spend hours and hours prepping for shows and interviews and, you know, I just don't go out there willy nilly. So um, I think a lot of it comes from that research and just preparation, you know, to, to know everything I can and know everything about the people that I'm with. And so my job is to put them in the best position to be successful and have them succeed. So, you know, whether it's Taylor Townsend or Jeannie Bouchard or um, Shelby Rogers or Sloan Stevens or any of the, you know, the current players that I've been able to have the pleasure of working with, you know, CeCe Bellis recently, just to get them in a position to be comfortable and succeed. And that's a success for me. So, um, you know, like I said, I'm just, just grateful to be there. I, I don't take any of this for granted. And, um, you know, I, I'm honored that my bosses have put me in this position. And um, every time, you know, I'm at in Paris at Roland Garros and I'm on that desk and I look around and I just kind of, you know, take it all in. 
it's never it, it never gets old it's always the nerves are always there mike and um you know that that little bit of butterflies doesn't go away um and i just you know try to tell myself to to do my thing and and uh you know everything will go well that's some great advice i think for anyone listening who's kind of looking to get into the industry as well it doesn't happen accidentally you got to put in the time you got to put in that hard work um and 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 that definitely helps as well as some good fortune i found in in my career in tennis is some lucky breaks here and there maybe someone you meet have a conversation with and that turns into something you know that you can build from is there anyone in particular that uh, that helps you get to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of folks. I mean, th there's a guy named Don Colantonio that gave me my first break at ESPN to do tennis for uh, the DirecTV ESPN3 mix. So I did that for basically five years at ESPN, the Australian Open, Wimbledon, the US Open, calling matches and hosting that mosaic feed. And then while I was there, you know, I got to work with the Jensen brothers who I've become close with and Taylor Dent and Chanda Rubin and... Uh, Mark Woodford. And I, I owe a lot to Woody. I mean, when I left ESPN and, you know, went to Tennis Channel, I actually, uh, it was Indian Wells 2015. And, you know, Woody had become a dear friend, his family. And so he was like, he lives in the desert. He's like, come out and I'll get you a gig with BBC Radio and you can stay with the family at, at our in our guest room and um, just have a fun week. And so, you know, before that, I had sent an email to Tennis Channel and I was like, hey, I'm going to be there if you have time to meet. You know, I've done stuff at ESPN. And um, Bob Wiley, who is our, our, our fearless leader, who I owe a, a ton of, of gratitude towards, um, was like, hey, I can't meet. But why don't you call the first uh, two days of matches for us as like a paid audition? And I was like, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, I was able to do that. And, and, and I called Marty Fish's first match back after all of the, the mental health stuff. And Marty had become a buddy of mine through friends at ESPN. And so that kind of came full circle for me. I, I knew Marty well. And so it, it, you know, worked out that I was, you know, calling his first match back and with Jim and Lindsay. And the fact that I was staying at, at Woody's house kind of, you know, broke the ice with them. Like, oh, you know, like he's cool with, with a Hall of Famer, like he must, must be, be a great guy. Must be a decent guy. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so I, so I definitely owe a lot to Mark Woodford and, and you know, just for kind of breaking the ice there. And and uh, and and then, you know, every, everybody at Tennis Channel has just been so warm and generous. And, and I say it a lot, but I, I truly believe that tennis is a family. And, you know, I've played my whole life and met, it, it's been, I, I wouldn't be living in this house without, tennis I wouldn't you know there's, there's so many things in my life that I wouldn't have you know without tennis and I'm just you know I I, I can't wait to see what, what more it brings but but I'm incredibly grateful for what it has so far right on uh one of the names you mentioned there in in your last answer was uh Taylor Dent who actually was the first tennis player I ever interviewed one-on-one -on -one back at the Lake Mason tournament as it was called in in DC back in 2008 and as I was re-listening to your chat with Ben from a year ago on Matchpoint Canada, you mentioned, I think that was the first event that, that uh, or uh, the, the event you grew up going to, I should say, yeah. as a kid. Um, who were the players that you grew up with watching there in DC that really captured your imagination and, and turned you onto the sport? I mean, Agassi is the guy for me. Uh, there, there were a bunch that, that, I, that I grew up watching at the Lake Mason Tennis Classic, but Andre Agassi was... Well, I, I wrote a paper about him in 11th grade um, and I, he's always been, you know, the one that I kind of looked up to and, and modeled my game around and just, 
you know, thought was the coolest guy on earth. Um, so, you know, he, he's the, the, my first autograph that I got. I still have it at my parents' house under, underneath my bed on, on one of the, the tickets from the Leg Mason Tennis Classic. I mean, I watched Brad Gilbert play there. I watched Peter Corda play there, Michael Chang play there, the Jensen brothers play there. Um, you know, there, there were so many, you know, great players that, that came through that event. But Agassi was like the one big name that always came to D.C. Uh, you won it multiple times. And so, you know, that was really cool for me being like, that's my hero, my, you know, tennis idol. The fact that he came to that tournament, because not all the top guys did come. Right. But he did. Um, and, and I say this all the time, but like the fact when he followed me on Twitter and Instagram and like we're two two huge days and permanent you know, grin on your face that day right yeah i mean i still check i'm like is he is dre still following yep yep <laughs> still following me cool um so like he doesn't follow a ton of people and and i honestly like, i don't like i would like to know him more i would love to to get together and and have coffee dinner anything honestly Whatever. Um, yep. but you know the fact that he thinks i'm cool enough to even follow i, I find awesome not bad uh, not bad but that was getting his autograph and everything was super cool. It's funny. So he was your first autograph. He was my last autograph ever. And uh, I mean, obviously we're grown up now. So even if I wasn't working in tennis, I think I'm beyond the autograph stage. But yeah. my now wife... Now you can get a selfie. A selfie. That's it. That's the new thing, right? My wife got me his autograph at a book signing for Open when that came out um, years ago. And uh, so I got that stashed away somewhere. But as you've got yours under your you know, old childhood bed, maybe at your parents' house... I've got so many ticket stubs from the Canadian Open uh, or whatever it was called back in the day, tucked, uh, tucked away somewhere at my, my folks' place as well, both men and women from then. Uh, they'd come and practice near my house. It was just, as a kid, the coolest thing ever. And uh, a lot of those names you mentioned were the same ones I grew up, so we must be around the same age because Chang, Courier, uh, Becker, Edberg, those guys, um, Steffi Graf, and, and even Martina at the end of her career. Um, yeah. So many good memories of watching all them. I get goosebumps, not so much when I talk to current players now, but when I talk to former players, retired players, who I grew up idolizing. Do you ever have moments like that? Or, or maybe with some current players too. I mean, I get pretty excited when I talk to Serena now and then when she's in Toronto. Uh, that one still gets me for sure. How are you when it's either former players or current players? Is there anyone that gets you a little bit kind of pumped up? I think it's always, the first time is always something special. So, you know, last year Roland Garros was the first time I spoke to Roger Federer. Um, you know, I'd seen him in passing and, and maybe said hi once or twice, but that was the first time I actually had the chance to interview him on the desk. And so that, you know, the, those are one of those like really nervous energy, excited um, moments, you know, when, when I was able to do that. And the, the first time I was able to interview Nadal, first time I was able to interview Djokovic, um, you know, the, these legends, I think that's something that, that's really special. Um, I still actually haven't interviewed Serena on any of our desks. Um, maybe, I don't think maybe at Wimbledon, hopefully, right? Maybe at Wimbledon. That would be, that would be amazing. Uh, but I, I think when it's, when it's that level of player and it's the first time, but you know, whenever I get to talk to these players and these greats that are really, you know, one of ones in as humans on the planet, I, I don't take that for granted because I'm, I'm always trying to learn something um, because if I learn something, I feel like the viewers learning something as well. So, uh, I, you know, whether it's their philosophy or, or something deeper than tennis, because for me, when I get to chat with them, you know, tennis is secondary. Um, that that's, I, I want to know about them. I want to know about their life, their interests. Um, 
you know, fun stuff. The human uh, element, right? The human yeah, element. Yeah, exactly. That's where I want to connect. Um, you know, I always say, like, give me 30 seconds before an interview. I can break somebody down, make them laugh, smile, and then the interview's going to be great. It's always tough when somebody, you know, comes straight to the desk. I've never met them before, and then we're going straight to interview because it's very interview, interviewee. You know, you don't have that sort of relaxed atmosphere. Um, but if I can get 30 seconds to, you know, tell you so- something that'll make you smile, then I think, you know, the trust builds and, and the interview shows in terms of that familiarity. But uh, no, I mean, I, I get excited for all of them, Mike, honestly. I mean, but the first time is always, is always special um, because you're meeting somebody for the first time that you obviously know who they are, and but you don't know them like that. So I think it's just developing that relationship and, it's, it's been, you know, a pleasure to be able to kind of get to know these players year after year. And then they you become build. comfortable with me. Yeah. And, and, and in a tournament where somebody keeps winning and winning and winning, right? So they come to the desk every time. That becomes a thing. And I, I think a lot of players are superstitious as well. And so they like uh, coming back. Or if I was just going to say, maybe they think you're good luck if they keep winning, right? Exactly. I mean, Angebur, who is a so charming and amazing player. And, and, you know, I've gotten to know her off the court um, during Charleston this year. She didn't come to the desk because she didn't come after any of her like first or second round wins. So then it was kind of a thing in her head. I'm not going to come until after the final. And it was weird. Cause I, I saw her in the hotel and we were, um, you know, we were talking about Uber eats and like, just like random stuff. And then the next day she won her quarterfinal match and she didn't come to the desk. I was like, why? I thought we were cool. Like, why, why is Nala's coming? And, you know, she told the handler um, that, you know, because I didn't come earlier, it's a superstition. I'm not going to come until. So she actually, after the semifinals, I knew she wasn't coming. And she point, told sure. her, she was like, tell Steve tomorrow I'm coming with the trophy. And, you know, she didn't win the final. Belinda Bencic won. But uh, and then she gets to Madrid, wins the whole tournament goes to see Prakash after every single, oh, no. but like said hi to me on air. It would be like, Prakash, I want to say hi to Steve. Let him know that I'm not just coming to see you. It's because I've come like since the start here, blah, blah, blah. So like, nothing personal, right? Nothing yeah, personal. No, I, I, I appreciate that. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's different with, with every player, but uh, it, it's awesome getting to know them. You, uh, you touched upon Roger Federer there a little while ago, and I'm just wondering any background sort of scuttlebutt or word on the street in terms of how his recovery is going? I haven't seen much lately. So obviously we've all got fingers crossed, loving, you know, the opportunity to see him back on the court healthy again um, before he hangs up the racket, hopefully on his own terms. You got any insider information or what you've been hearing on him? I mean, he entered Basel. So we expect him to play there. I think he's going to play the labor cup. Um, And all I know is kind of like when he puts out those videos, so he's put out some videos of him, hitting, you know, there been multiple videos of him hitting. And then there was one where he was training and the knee looked good and all that. So that's pot. Whenever I see Roger or Serena kind of put out videos of them playing tennis to me, that's like, okay, they're comfortable letting people know that, that they're, they're out there, they're training and they're on the comeback. So um, other than labor cup in Basel, I'm not really sure, but that that's good enough for me. And uh as long as, you know, we see him back on the court. I mean, listen, like he made the quarterfinals in his last event. And that was on a, you know, a one knee, one leg. On so, the biggest stage uh, in the world, right? Arguably, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So 
you know, I, I hope I hope he's able to to come back as strong as possible. And I never put anything um, or any doubts on those greats on and what they can accomplish. No matter how old they are, they just keep proving us not wrong, but they just keep proving themselves yeah, over time and, over and time again. again. Absolutely, absolutely. I also do know how it's like when you hit forty, all of a sudden everything hurts, and that uh, is <laughs> is not as a professional athlete, just as a regular hack on the tennis court. So uh, it doesn't get easier, unfortunately. Um, you're heading over to Paris in just a couple days uh, from when we record this. And, and this is before the start of Roland Garros. We haven't seen the draws yet or anything. But first and foremost, a different vibe for you when you're preparing to go and cover a slam for two weeks. You talked about how much prep work you put in. Is this like the most kind of prep and the busiest you ever get trying to get ready for a 14-day or, or even more uh, coverage of a, a major tournament? It's interesting. I, I would say it doesn't change too much um, just because I'm covering, at, you know, virtually every week of the year. So, you know, the fact that I've been on air for Madrid and Rome, you know, the last 14 days leading up to this and then everything else before that, you know, like I'm up to date um, and, and Monte Carlo and Charleston and, you know, I, I work a lot. So um, it's not it's not about catching up on anything um, I know the storylines, uh, you know, the, the preparation is, is going to be intense no matter whether I'm, you know, doing a half hour show or an hour show. Um, you know, there's more writing when it comes to an hour show. There's way more writing when it comes to a two hour show. So that, you know, takes more preparation. Uh, in Paris, you know, the interviews are, are something that take a lot of prep, but I'm doing that throughout the day. It's not like I prepare, you know, I, I find out which players we've requested if they win uh, in the morning. And so then I, I'm following every match. And after one set gets done, I start prepping that, those questions for that player and researching that player. Not that I don't know them, but just to know exactly what's going on now, go through all their social media, go through every Google search, and just to find out something new, fresh, and different um, that I can talk to them about. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's it's different for a slam other than, you know, the hours are a lot longer. I would say Indian Wells might be my most intense two weeks just because I'm doing a TC live every single day. Then I'm on the desk through the night session and then I have to write when I get off the desk and go back to the hotel, start prepping and writing TC live for the next morning. So I'm really never off. In Paris, we have, I think five or seven TC lives. There's going to be a preview show before the tournament. And then as we get, you know, towards the end of the tournament, we do the show. But when we're in the tournament, I'm basically bringing us on air, doing interviews all day long, doing segments throughout the day, and then taking us through the night session. So it's like a 13 hour day, which is super intense in that nature. But whether or not I have a show determines, you know, whether it's more writing or, or not. So, you know, they're, they're, they're all pretty intense. I would say Paris is second most at 16 days in a row, which is the most days in a row at one event I'll ever spend um, because of the pre-show and then the 15 days of the tournament. So, uh, you know, but it, it's, it's so much fun, Mike. I mean, honestly, like it's, it's a privilege to be there. So, you know, the work comes with it. I, I enjoy doing the work because that's what, you know, makes it a good product. And, and that's what, hopefully makes me uh, keep coming back to, to do these things for a long time. So, um, and, and I love talking to the players and learning and, and, and being on top of everything so that, you know, I truly love tennis. Um, so that's something that is, is fun for me. 
Yeah, same here, same here. And it's so nice that things are opening up again and we're getting to do more of those face-to-face interviews and see them in front of us as opposed to through the Zoom or, or whatever the case may be. I'm super stoked for the Toronto and Montreal events to be back, hopefully running at full capacity this summer. Uh, do you ever come to Canada for those events or do them remotely or what's... Um... I do them remotely. So so I I do them from LA. I would love to come to Canada. Uh, Canadians are very nice people and I hear nothing but great things about those events. And maybe one day I'll I'll get to travel to them. But but I've been covering those events from our studios in Santa Monica for a while now. Uh, I'm doing it again this summer. So we you gotta know, find it, a way. We gotta find a way to get you up here. Yes. I mean, you and Jeannie had some good connection when you were uh, right. together doing that. So it's time for you to come to her home soil, maybe, and uh, repay the favor. Exactly. No, that would be awesome. I, I would love to do it. Um, you know, we'll see if if Tennis Channel can can make that happen. But you know, Jeannie was a pleasure to work with. Yeah. I mean, you got a bunch of 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 Canadians that are doing well right now, and that I'm excited to to see in Paris. Um, I love talking to Layla. She's fantastic. Bianca, I'm really excited for, you know, what what Paris holds for her. Um, I met her before she kind of blew up. I, you know, when she won Indian Wells that year, I was doing suite visits with the tournament with her. So I, you know, brought her around to a bunch of different corporate suites and would talk to her there. And that was before, you know, she won a major and she won all these tournaments. And uh, so, you know, I, I, I have a soft spot for her. Felix, that same year I got to interview uh, for a, a lengthy time for the tournament, couldn't be a, a more awesome guy. Um, Isn't he great? Yeah, he is just one of my. I always one of my favorites. I like all of them for different reasons, but uh, just such a great role model for the kids off the court and how he carries himself. It's incredible that he's only what twenty one, twenty two years yeah. old. Yeah, I mean, well beyond his years in terms of maturity, and you know, they're all so smart. And so, um, I, I had one Layla story for you. Okay, let's that, hear it. Yeah. So at Indian Wells, um, two years, so in, in the fall, Indian Wells, right, I right. had taken over our Instagram and Layla was super cool because I, you know, did like this breakfast segment with her and I, I'm bad on social media and I erased it. And so I had to ask her if she would retape the whole thing with like me and her and her breakfast, whatever. She was super cool about it, did it. So this year... Uh, I see her dad in the media player dining and I had just gotten my acai bowl that I get every single day at the tournament. They have Indian Wells is the best food. You mentioned that specific dish when you were on with us last year. So you must really yeah. love it. Yeah. Every day. I mean, I have my routine there. I literally, I come in, I get my omelet and my iced coffee, go to TC live, finish the show, come back, get my acai bowl, go back, do a bunch of interviews, come back, get sushi. It's like every day for 12 straight days, Mike. And, um, so one day I'm getting my acai bowl and I see Layla's dad uh, trying to get her orange juice. And because of the fact that I had talked to her, you know, in, in the fall, I knew she loved her orange juice. She like needs orange juice and her eggs every single morning. And they didn't have fresh squeezed orange juice for some reason. And I could see he was a bit dispirited and like out of sorts. And so I, I went and I, I found him uh, a, a bottle of, you know, like Tropicana orange juice. It wasn't the fresh squeeze, but I was like, here you go. I was like, I know Layla needs her, her OJ before she plays. And he like, couldn't have been more thankful. And I was just like, yes. Like, you know, like the fact, and it was cool because I knew like her, you know, thing with the OJ and breakfast and whatever. And, um, 
So I hope I helped that day. And then, you know, the next time a request goes out, she's probably that much more likely to say, yes, I'll go talk to Steve on the desk. No problem. I don't, Got I don't, me know, my OJ. He, I don't know if he knew who I was or like, you know, whatever. But I was just like, I'm, you know, going to pay this one forward and I'm going to find Layla's dad some, some OJ. Very nice. Steve Weissman, friend of Canada, friend of Canadian tennis players. Um, that's awesome. That's a great story to end on, actually. And uh, look, you have... An awesome trip over there, safe travels, and enjoy the grind. But I know you're going to love it because I'm the same way, and there's nothing else I'd rather be doing either. We'll be watching on TV. And, uh, hey, look, we're definitely going to have to have you back. This is becoming an annual thing. So uh, thank you again for taking the time and look forward to chatting with you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Mike, for having me. And uh, next time, like you said, you and Ben, I'm going to get the full – match point treatment here for Canada. I'll get, I'll get both of y'all, but uh, it's been a pleasure getting to catch up with you. And hopefully I get to see you in person at, at, at some event in the future. If it's not Canada, somewhere else. Me and Ben will have to come South if you won't uh, be able to come up here. That's right. There we go. I, I look forward to it. Thanks for having me. There you have it. Mike's interview with Steve Wiseman. Great to hear about his career and working alongside uh, some top, top players, getting to hit with them too. Um, we should dive right into Roland Garros as the tournament is beginning. And Abigail, I wanted to start on the men's field. I think the the top storyline is really just the draw. I mean, we had a lot of storylines going in of like, how is Rafa's foot? Can Novak Djokovic repeat? Is Alcaraz ready for a slam? And then we get this draw that loads all three of them in the top half and a crazy quarter featuring Novak and Rafa on a a collision course. I guess, what are your first impressions when you look at the men's field and and what we have with the singles draw? It's pretty incredible. Um, I actually, obviously it jumps out because I, I think for the majority of people, Djokovic, Nadal and Alcaraz for different reasons are the big names coming into it this year. They've all landed in the same half. But actually, when you look deeper, you've got your Tsitsipas and your your Zverev, Medvedev, Rublev on the other half. And some dangerous lurkers as well, like Shapovalov and Kezmanovic are are in there. So I I think it's interesting when you look deeper, you really understand the depth of the ATP tour right now. I think the, the men's side of things got a bit of criticism a few years back for maybe not having the kind of depth as the the WTA tour Uh, the top guys were so dominant and best of five was a real factor but I think that guys have been stepping up and taking encouragement from each other and really kind of starting to close the gap so I think when you take a deeper look maybe it's a little bit more balanced than would first meet the eye but those big three names in that top half do do really jump out so I, I think um I kind of thought, well, here we go again, because we've been in this kind of situation before. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, really reminiscent, actually, uh, of 2015, which was uh, the last season that Nadal was struggling a bit. Um, on that occasion, it was more, I think, mentality than physical fitness. Right. Uh, but this time around, there are question marks for him. And he comes in with Novak Djokovic lined up for quarterfinals, which was the same situation that he was facing in 2015. And in that year, Djokovic actually got the better of him. So, so that was a very interesting thing that cropped up for me, the potential for a rematch at that stage and how it might go down on this occasion. But yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the, the, the really amazing thing for me is how we can come in and look at this men's draw. Alcaraz has not been beyond the quarterfinals of a Grand Slam, but it doesn't seem inconceivable for him to, to go to that stage and beyond. And I, I think it, it, it speaks massively 
aspect of the consistent, steady progress that he's made, kind of climbing step after step, uh, taking it bit by bit, building up his consistency across tournaments and then stepping up and getting wins over the big names uh, and uh, really looking ready to peak where it matters most I mean he's not without um, best of five set experience but I, I think that you know he's got a few matches potentially to to play his way in to get mm -hmm. himself going and if he does last for a meeting with either Nadal or Djokovic I, I think that that's going to be one to remember for years to come yeah I, I mean I guess the one question mark, it's hard to attach a question mark to a player who's won four titles this season and has been so spectacularly dominant, beating Nadal and Djokovic in succession in Madrid. Uh, how many players can we count who have done that? Literally one. I mean, David uh, Nalbandian, you know, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, pardon me. So like in terms of the season and even his losses, for me, Alcaraz is still impressed. I, I look at what he did at the Australian Open, very dominant, his first two wins there, and loses, you know, 7-6 in the fifth to Matteo Berrettini, who reaches the semifinals and, of, of course, is, is a terrific top 10 player. So I, I don't really worry about him in terms of a best-of-five format, especially you look at his game style, the way he plays, so high energy, um, immensely quick around the court. He doesn't look like someone who's going to run out of gas physically. So I, I wonder more, is there someone who can, as you said, cause him trouble early round? And I, I think the name that is probably standing out to some people who've looked at the draw is Sebastian Corda, um, picking up a win against him just a few weeks ago. Yeah, this is a good point. I, I think that it can backfire when you've played another competitor ahead of a major event and come out with the win first time around, because I feel like in those situations, mm -hmm. the losing player always has more to kind of take away from the encounter. And it's it's better for them to to kind of take stock ahead of the next meeting and see what they need to do differently. And then there's maybe a little bit of expectation for quarter seeing as he's got the win previously yeah. and he is singled out as one of those guys that could potentially get the job done. So yeah, I, I think that he's definitely a dangerous lurker and yeah, it may, maybe Alcaraz will find kind of those opening rounds more challenging because this is the first time that he's come into a major with a status as a favorite to go all the way. So if there are any nerves or um, any bits of uncertainty, or he hasn't played a match in a while because he, he skipped Rome, if there's any kind of vulnerability, then maybe those guys at the beginning of things are going to have the best shot. But for, for Corda, I, I just think maybe it backfires on him that he got the lead up win it might not come come through with a, a win for him at the big event. But I totally share your view on the best of five set thing. I mean, people, I think, are just running out of questions to throw Alcaraz's way. Because yeah. when I heard that one about best of five, I thought, but, but has he, is he short on, on best of five experience? I mean, yes, when you compare him against the likes of Nadal and Djokovic, but still very vivid in my mind is the manner in which he beat Stefano Tsitsipas at the mm -hmm. US Open last year on the way to the quarterfinals. And that spoke volumes to his ability to handle and rise up in the big moments, the kinds of shots that he was playing when push came to shove and the way he didn't roll over when he had his back against the wall. And I, I think that he's 
yeah, he's answered every question that's been asked of him. You can't answer the questions that haven't been asked yet. Um, he withdrew in that quarter final at the US Open, as you alluded to, barely missed out against Matteo Berrettini at the Australian Open. So mm -hmm. I don't think there's any real reason, if we look at that grueling match he had against Novak Djokovic as well in Madrid, there's no real reason to doubt his physicality or his mentality. So I, I think that's why so many people have such good feelings about him coming into the events yeah yeah that's that's well said um we'll we'll briefly talk about i i think the one player who as you mentioned maybe we are doubting his ability physically just at this point but it seems every time we do he he answers the bell and that's obviously rafael nadal i mean all the question marks were there you know ahead of this season his chances even in australia what what could he do could he physically endure best of five over seven matches and uh, he came back and won that title and now the foot acts up again he has a shortened clay season the rib injury is a setback I guess my question with Nadal here in the top quarter of this draw, is this a worse draw for Rafa or is it a worse draw for Novak um, given, given this upcoming showdown, if we do get it? Well, it's, it's a great question. That one, I, I'm not sure if, I think it might be a subjective answer really depending on what angle you look at it from. Um, I would be inclined to say that it is a worse draw for Nadal purely because he has the status of having risen triumphant here so many times I think when you've got two such great champions it's really going to come down to fine margins mm -hmm. um I mean let's throw Alcaraz into the mix there as well he's you know one of one of the favorites along with these two but no Grand Slam titles so immediately if he gets to that stage if he loses to either of those two players yeah it's disappointing for him but hey they're the 20 something major champions you know they, they, that doesn't look bad for him so then you come down to the the Djokovic and Nadal situation well Nadal has more Roland Garros titles by some stretch so I think just automatically in terms of history and in terms of numbers there's always going to be more expectation for Nadal and at the end of the day even though Djokovic got the win last season and even though Djokovic got that win in 2015, it's more of a shock if Nadal loses than if Djokovic loses. So just from that alone, if we're going to make it really compact and concise here, I, I, I think that would indicate that for, for Nadal in terms of a reputational thing, in terms of maybe how many chances he has left as well, uh, I, I think it's uh, a tougher draw for Nadal, I would say, than for Djokovic. I don't know what your thoughts you would have there on that one. Yeah, I might be inclined to agree in terms of a draw for a defending champion, which is Novak Djokovic. It's, I would say, absolutely brutal. But I think for Nadal, he's going to have to be playing his way into form, so to speak, because of the lack of clay lead up. I think I would view it differently if we were going into this tournament and Rafa had you know, won Rome, for example, or he had lasted and and won Madrid and uh, looked physically fine. I, I think just with the question marks around his foot, um, it, it's going to be potentially uh, more difficult for him. But uh, if he gets a few easy wins early, you never know. There isn't a, a Canadian lurking on the top half, and we'll touch on the Canadians. Felix Ojealiasim, he had such a great start to this season. I thought he looked in awesome form. Quarterfinals Australia, got his first career title in Rotterdam, had a dip at, at the Sunshine Double, but he's looked like he's playing some great, great tennis again. He made back-to-back -back Masters quarterfinals and really pushed Djokovic um, just the other week in Rome. 
I don't know if he's ready to take a big step at the French, given he could face Rafa in the round of 16. But uh, just what do you make of the way Felix is playing right now? Well, first and foremost, I think the favourites of this event are such heavy favourites that it really takes a lot of pressure off the underdogs and the, and the dark horses that are in the draw. So that probably um, would work in Felix's favour. Uh, I was really impressed at the way he bounced back after the Australian Open because it's easy to forget he was in that winning position against Daniil Medvedev, two sets to love up on the verge of the straight sets win and then Medvedev charges back and for someone who'd been making such good progress uh, that was a really brutal loss but he completely took it in the right way and I've got a lot of respect for him with the developments he's made this year because it was a well-known stat his performance as an ATP finals and getting so close to the trophy and not being able to raise it I mean the more often that happens the more of a mental battle that becomes and I don't think it's ever really been physical with Uja Aliasim. He he's been the package for a while in terms of his physical game. Yeah, there are little hiccups here and there, but he's always had great potential. I remember Shapovalov way back when was breaking through a little bit beforehand and he was almost like, oh, wait for Felix, you know, he's better than me. And (laughs) wait till you see what he's got to offer kind of thing. Um, Maybe there were issues with him being a little bit passive sometimes in some big moments. But again, I think if you take it down to the bottom level sometimes that's just a confidence thing sometimes it is how much do you really believe and how much are you really willing to go for it in those pressure moments um i wouldn't necessarily say that plays as go to so the roland garros would not be the obvious stage for him to shine but maybe that stands in his favor like i say because he's not your kind of obvious person to to go for glory and he, he's got a decent opening couple of rounds there in yep. in the draw opens yep. against a qualifier potentially if Karatsev can't get it done in the opening round he could have a qualifier second round as well it, it's a, a little bit of a an opportunity to to play his way in under the radar and, and kind of see what he can do but I, yeah I, I think it's good improvements for him would I be calling him to win a major now no I, I don't think that he's quite hardened enough yet and uh, I don't think maybe he's quite there 24-7 that the way some other players are and there's just too many players that thrive in this kind of environment to be honest but you know going forwards uh, I, I I think there's definitely reason to to be hopeful that he keeps taking these steps up. Yeah, well, certainly at the at the very least, an opportunity to get past the first round of the French Open, which he stunningly has not done in his career. So I, I think we're going to see a career best result at the very least at Roland Garros for Felix. You mentioned Dennis earlier, and I think he's one of these big time dangerous names on the bottom half of the draw, which looks a lot more open to me. I, I think Firstly, it's a, an amazing draw for Stefano Tsitsipas. He must be thrilled about this to, to find himself <laughs> on the bottom half of the draw, avoiding all these landmines and really has a great path to maybe get back to that final. And you never know. But uh, Denis Shapovalov, look, he has a tough first match against Holger Rune, who is very talented. Um, but but after that, uh, ultimately, I, I think he's one of a mix of probably five or six names who could be pushing to, you know, maybe make a semifinal or better. 
Yeah, he was one of the immediate names actually that jumped out to me from that belt bottom half of the draw. Yeah, I, look, let's be real. I dressed it up a little bit earlier. This is definitely the more open half of the draw. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, but yeah, Shafo, if he can come through that first round, it's kind of um, you look at that and you think, oh, terrible draw for him. But yeah, look, if, if he can come through that he's immediately hardened for the rest of the tournament. Like Runa's not going to go down easily. If that's a win, that's going to be a, a win that is worked for. Mm-hmm. And you can't underestimate the benefits of coming through a clash like that early on. Now it could end there and all these kind of hopes that we have for him could, could go to pieces. I mean, Runa's uh, he just made the, I, I think the semifinals in this most recent event and he, he's got some form going on the clay. Uh, but no, no, I think Shapovalov, it's been great to see how he's able to actually take his brand of tennis across surfaces because we saw how damaging he was at Wimbledon last year when a heartbreaking loss for him in the semifinals against Djokovic. He played so well and kind of walks away with nothing to show for it. And that's the kind of brutal firepower that we've grown used to seeing from him uh, and you wouldn't necessarily think he's a great fit for clay but you know I, I think he does show adaptability and I think that th- this is you know a- an opportunity for him actually to play his way into things if he can get over that first hurdle and you know p- potentially really do some damage yeah he- he's definitely one of the the leading names for me in that bottom half yeah, definitely. Uh, Daniil Medvedev is back um, and, and playing this tournament, but really essentially missed his entire clay season. So I think expectations are quite low there, despite the fact that he is uh, the world number two and has that number two seed. Any other names, I guess, popping out to you? I mean, the two that I would probably look at, Casper Ruud, we know his proficiency on clay. And then Andre Rublev, who, who does have a title on the surface this year, winning Belgrade. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? With uh, with Rude and Rublev, I, I'm not sure what it is because I have so much respect for both of them with, with the way they've come through. I'm going to use the word steady, very mm-hmm. kind of steady progress from the two of them. Um, you've had Rude who actually was killing it on clay initially and then transitioned into the, this great hardcore player as well. And uh, Rublev who actually started getting good results on the clay. He beat Nadal on clay last year and uh, it's good to see how he's been able to sustain I just worry for the two of them when they go deeper into the draw and across this best of five format. I think sometimes maybe a maybe a, a lack of options sometimes are yeah. exposed. Like I think with the two of them just across the longer matches, I don't know whether it's a physical or a mental ceiling, but I, I, I have less confidence in them maybe to be honest with you than in the likes of a Shapovalov um certainly less than um a sits of pass or or as Verev I think who who've um been adapting and uh going fairly deep at, at the majors foot for some time now so yeah it's interesting I think um Yannick Sinner is in there somewhere kind of kind of knocking around and yep. he's he's just a great talent is Sinner in terms of the athlete that he is and the results that he's now been getting over a sustained period and uh, I, I actually struggle to recall off the top of my head where he got to at Roland Garros last year but I remember him he has he has made a quarterfinal I recall um but that made I think, that was I think. two years ago yep yeah so because that was in the fall 
and he played Nadal and there was a lot of kind of hype ahead of that match and, mm. and eventually Nadal kind of slams the door at the end of the match but it was a, a very kind of nervy close opening set and Sinner I think was unfortunate not to walk away with it and against someone like Nadal in his playground that first set is so important you know for yeah. your confidence and for getting in his head so if a couple of points had gone differently there for Sinner then who knows but the point is and I mean he's beaten Zverev here at Roland Garros before as well he, he's he's got the wins here and yet because of uh, the rise of you know who and, and and other players you know in the draw he, he is very much below the radar I feel coming into this one his his big results this year big uh, results uh, coming on hard courts so yeah I, I think that Yannick Sinner is one to be aware of and uh Manovic as well is, has been knocking around and uh just showing himself a little bit more regularly this season so uh, yeah I, th- I think those two are a couple of names just to keep track of yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, both guys lurking. Sinner, of course, could do plenty of damage. I, I guess to wrap up on the men's side, is there any first round match like you have circled on this draw? You're like, I have to see this one. Uh, Stefano Tsitsipas, Lorenzo Musetti round oh, nice. one, okay. I believe, if yep. I've got that right. Because the, what is really interesting to me there two players that were two sets to love up on Novak Djokovic last year. Mm-hmm. And arguably should have got the job done. I, I think both of them had were very kind of opportune moments there. And Djokovic just showed his classic Novak Djokovic thing of you take your foot off the gas for one or two points and I'm straight back in this. And uh, you have big lessons for, for both players, I think. So it's, it's killer for the two of them that one of them having gone fairly deep last year, one of them's not going to go beyond the first round. So uh, yeah, pretty pretty popcorn opening match there, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, one other one I have at least penciled in. Casparud uh, opening against Joe Wilfried Sanga. I, I think that'll be a fun one. The the French crowd support should be phenomenal for Sanga, who's had some great runs at the French Open in the past. Of course, not quite the same player he once was, um, but maybe he gets a bit buoyed by that crowd and and you never know, pushes Rude in, in a great opening round match. Uh, we'll shift over to the women's side. It's it's almost ironic, you know, every time the French Open comes around, it's the storyline is Rafa versus the field. And this time around, it's Iga versus the field. Like, I, that has to be the story. I mean, she's won 28 consecutive matches, five consecutive titles dating back to February, beginning in Qatar. Ash Barty, who was the dominant force and former world number one, is retired. And, you know, I, I'm trying to just go down the list and pick a few names who could maybe stop her. And I, I think it's pretty limited. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like Iga <laughs> is a heavy, heavy favorite to pull this off. It's incredible, isn't it? And I'm so impressed with what she's done because she was essentially given the world number one ranking by default. Yeah. Because Barty retires and she's then got the option of actually staying on the rankings or withdrawing herself from them. And she comes off the rankings. So Sviantec has that top ranking next to her name. And there are asterisks for sure. Like there, there are question marks. And from that moment, she stepped up and she delivered. And, and that's awesome in, in a tour that has had, you know, so much talent for so long, but so much instability as well. And I think she showed signs of it prior to Barty winning the Australian Open and then pulling the plug. But the timing has just been phenomenal. And uh, the manner in which she's done it as well has been pretty breathtaking. A, a lot of kind of 
dominant wins, particularly in finals. I mean, she's not just yeah. winning finals, she's winning you know, straight sets in finals. Uh, so, so it's got to be someone that can trouble her, has, has got to be someone I think that can give her a battle, kind of keep her out there, put her in those situations where she's going to get frustrated. I was actually re-watching the, the Rome final today against Ange Dubur, and she won that 6-2, 6-2, but beginning of the second set, she's getting frustrated over missing a shot, like quite visibly agitated. And I, I thought, well, interesting, you know, you're winning quite comprehensively mm-hmm. here, but still getting under your skin, you know? She, she's got that um, Rafael Nadal perfectionist nature going on there. Yeah. So if someone can really rattle her, that'll be interesting. Now, I'm not just saying this because I'm on the, the Matchpoint Canada podcast, but one of, one of the names that came to my, my mind, Bianca Andreescu is a player that's got a lot in her locker and the options that if they were to come up against each other at some point, someone that could unsettle Sviantec. And Andreescu has that ability to use the different spins on her shots, but also step up and hit the ball when she needs to. And I feel like on the tour at the moment, you've got a set of players that are big hitters, and then you've got a set of players that are more crafty, and it's not often that those kind of two things come hand in hand. Mm-hmm. I think Andreescu is one of those players that can actually do both. And I, I think to really kind of knock Sviantec off a seat at the moment you've got to have that mix and you've got to have those options and I think Andrescu is one of those players another name that would come to mind is the defending champion herself Barbora Krajikova other side of the draw but she's another player with kind of that that versatility and maybe the ability to take Shreon, the ball off Sriontek's racket a bit more. I mean, Sriontek takes the ball so quickly and so immediately and, and with such uh, great disguise that it's very difficult to establish yourself in the rallies. But uh, that's the challenge. And I think that there are a couple of names that at some point could potentially stand up to that. Yeah, look, uh, Emma Raducanu, I believe, said in her press the, the biggest challenge of facing Iga Sviantek was her unpredictability. You couldn't get a read on on where she was going to play, and there's already yeah. so much pace, pace on that shot and, and depth, um, and, and she can find angles and, and mix up the variety. You're going to make a lot of Canadian tennis fans by uh, shouting it to Bianca as your first pick as someone who could potentially get in her way. And look, they played a very competitive uh, first set just the other week in Rome, 7-6, uh, going to a breaker before Iga took over. Uh, I'll just say we've we've been so impressed with how strong BB has looked in this return after, you know, a six-month layoff, going 6-3 and three on the clay, a couple big-time wins, easily beating Daniel Collins, beating Petra Martic, Allison Riss, some, some top, top-end players. And as you said, um, has that sort of mix of power game with some deft touch. And I think her draw is is pretty comfortable here. Belinda Bencic is in that corner. So is Layla Fernandez, actually, who's had kind of an uneven season. But you never know if Bianca goes on a run. She's proven herself at a major before. Another name that's in my mind, actually, uh, of course, she's won the French Open before. And she has the new high-profile coaching hire is, is Simona Halep. Yeah, that's a good shout, you know, and I'm just I'm kind of scanning the draw as we speak and thinking there are any number of options, you know, when you really think about it, not necessarily in terms of taking it to Sriontek, but if something were to happen to Sriontek, players that could step up and kind of fill the void. 
I mean, we've seen it over the past few seasons. Qualifier when the U.S. Open, unseeded, uh, Barbara Krajikova wins Roland Garros last year. It, it's something that's been happening for a fair amount of time now. And I, I think, you know, if something were to happen to Sviantec, if she were to maybe just get tired, you know, the winning has to stop at some point. It would mm-hmm. really be horrible for her if, if it were to kind of come apart at the big tournament but the the streak has to stop somewhere so if she were to come undone there there is some I mean it's a very kind of full draw right the way down I don't think you can point to any particular section of the draw and say oh oh, this is uh you know nice opener for so and so or you know they, they could come through a few rounds here I think you know it's always got that element of unpredictability and yeah there's danger lurking at every corner if we take Sviantec away as the top heavy favorite. Yeah, definitely. And you're kind of looking and searching for players like who's been in form. I think Jessica Pagula has, has had a great clay court season. Um, Maria Sakkari is just always a standout player for me, giving, given her fitness and, and just her shot tolerance on the court. I, I think it's some of the best in the game and, and she's top five for a reason. She was very, very close to making this final last year. I, I wonder if she comes out incredibly hungry because she was, you know, a, a point away a couple of times and it felt almost like a foregone conclusion against Krychikova before that that match slipped away from her. Yeah, I, I still remember watching that. It, it was it was almost painful to watch that match because of the physical toll that it was taking on, on both players and then yeah. how it came down to a knife edge at the end. I felt for the both of them so much. Um, I have concerns about Zachary, if I'm completely honest with you. And she was a player that when she was kind of late teens, I was really looking at her as someone that could rise up and potentially do real damage in the future. And not to play down anything she's achieved. She's established herself as a consistent top player. Mm -hmm. But I think there is a danger there if you're really going for glory of having established yourself as that consistent top player, but not got across the line. Now, when she stepped out, she had the US Open semi-final after Roland Garros against Emma Raducanu. And that I, I had that same thought process of you as, oh, she, she'll be hungry now because she was so close against Krzyzikova and, and she seemed so sharp and so ready ahead of the match. But once she got out for that match, she tight as a drum. You know, she really couldn't find her way and, and couldn't handle kind of her status as the favorite without a major title under her belt yet i think that's a very difficult boat that players have found themselves in previously i'm thinking of the likes of carolina pliskova and alina zvitalina players that have been up there and delivering across the board for so long yeah but still haven't got that elusive major i think at some point it can become a mental battle and then with some with the versatility of some of the players in the draw now, I just wonder how Zachary holds up against that for the length of seven matches. Is she going to have an answer all the way through the tournament? For me, I'm not sure, to be completely honest. But it's the WTA Tour. Anything can happen. <laughs> yeah, anything can certainly happen, as you said. Um, let's point to, I guess, a couple must-watch matches. I mean, this one is obvious, and everybody's been talking about it. Naomi Osaka back at Roland Garros after what happened and transpired last year and draws Amanda Anisimova. I think that should be a phenomenal first-round clash. Well, that's must-watch. I was actually, because I was in Melbourne for the Australian Open this year commentating on AO Radio, and I, w- I was done for the day that day, but I went courtside to watch Osaka and Isimova. 
And I've got to say that's some of the best hitting that I've ever seen in wow. my life. Uh, the, the, the power hitting and the way that both of them were able to take the blows and absorb and redirect. And uh, Anissa Mova's calm and her composure in that situation was brilliant. I mean, I, I think Osaka had match points. I think she, she was a step away from winning that match. And never have I felt actually so sure in that situation that she wasn't going to come through. Such was the way Anissa Mova carried herself found to serve and found the big finishing shot in the key moments so she it's not often that you see someone out hit Osaka like that because she's got such a heavy shot on her I, I thought it was amazing the way Anissimova was able to step up and deliver and it's easy to forget that Anissimova has delivered here before I mean because she's still so young but when she was 17 in 2019 beats Simona Halep pretty comprehensively mm -hmm. and is a set and a break up on Ashley Barty in the semis Barty goes on to win the tournament and uh, because she's got that kind of flat lethal powerful game it's easier to link Anissimova more to one of the faster surfaces I guess but she's shown her ability on clay before and that, that's a very tricky opener for Osaka I, th I think yeah there's a reason that that is the standout first round here yeah yeah definitely um Osaka will be in in very tough with a major challenge there another standout match to me is uh Annette Contivate sort of the indoor hardcore queen uh, she'll have to face Isla Tomjanovic in uh what I think is a pretty compelling first round encounter I will just mention one other Canadian in the draw she qualified and is back in the main draw for the first time in 11 years Rebecca Marino phenomenal results in qualifying and she'll get Coco Goff in an opening round match which should be a I think a bit of a thriller to be honest yeah that's an interesting one um actually someone was saying to me earlier they thought that that goff had uh, quite a decent draw and quite an opportunity but these qualifier spots you know, you never know. It, it says qualifier but yeah there are some very interesting names that come through there um besides the fact that the qualifier already has three matches under the belt has the the rhythm is used to the conditions and uh you know marino has the experience so uh, yeah for, for goff that's a that's a nasty opening match and and for marino it's the opportunity isn't it she she's come through qualifying she's made the main draw it's kind of everything to gain from here and not so much to lose so i i think that she can she can really take a swing at that match definitely definitely that that serve plus forehand combo uh we'll see if it's it's clicking um abigail thank you so much for for joining us on this week's episode um love your insight as always and we'll be following you along with all your tennis content as well uh, but thanks so much for coming back on matchpoint canada always a pleasure thanks so much for having me yeah, we appreciate it. And we thank again to 10XTO, the official athletic club of Matchpoint Canada. Thanks to guest Steve Weisman. Uh, guys, we will talk to you next time.